It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. And when I'm talking tales and when I'm talking stories, I'm not talking about the news. I'm talking about folk tales and fairy tales and personal and family tales and historical tales and more. Some of them old, some of them new, but every one of them with something for you to hear and learn and talk about with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of talk, that kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. I'm looking forward to the hour we're going to spend together. Uh, we're going to hear from Olga Loya, a story called The Alligator and the Dog. And from Lona Bartlett, we'll hear an Anansi story. Anansi the spider. We'll hear about Anansi and the tiger. And we'll hear from Joseph Bruchek with a story of how Buzzard got his feathers. But it's not all animal stories today. In fact, to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Alyssa Mingorance, one of our assistant producers. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Hi, Sam. We're going to hear a Donna Washington story here. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about Samurai Over My Head. Yeah, so in this story, uh, Donna Washington is telling us a personal tale. Yeah, and I got to tell you, when I first saw the title of this story, I thought Mm -hmm. I went instantly to... You know, a historical tale. Yeah, like, oh, this must be a folk tale. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. it's not at all. It's a it's a personal tale about Donna and her family. Mm-hmm. And um, in this story, her um, family is kind of, her and her friends, you know, her family and her friends are all kind yeah. of telling these uh, spooky tales. Don't worry, not too spooky. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and it's, it's a great time. And we see the interesting ways that you can make memorable moments out of telling yeah. scary tales in the dark. <laughs> this is such a fun story uh, for me to hear. My, my, I've talked about it on the show before. My wife has a birthday tradition. Her birthday is in October. Mm. And so she has a, a birthday tradition of inviting friends and family over to the house. And, uh, and nobody is instructed to bring – everybody is instructed not to bring a gift. Instead, mm. they are to bring a story about a time when they were scared. And so it becomes an, an October evening of storytelling uh, that I am reminded of every time I hear this story, Samurai over my head. Donna Washington is the storyteller and you're going to love this tale. My last story of the evening is a traveling story and I send it with you and it comes to you courtesy of my adopted ancestors. You see, When I was a child, I spent a big chunk of my babyhood, and I think of babyhood, I'm thinking six, seven, eight, nine years old, in Korea. We lived in a place called RGH, the Rental Government Housing Area. The American government had rented a parcel of land from the Koreans, leveled it, and put up customary military duplexes. So you had a family living on either side. And in order to get from there to Yangsan, which was the base, you had to travel down this long road. Now, because RGH was out in the middle of nowhere, away from the base, our electricity was sketchy. We had a lot of brownouts and a lot of blackouts. And to make matters worse, I lived in a haunted house. Not by my own choosing and not by my putting on. When we moved in there, all the children in the neighborhood showed up and said, you guys have the haunted house. So what does that mean? Well, apparently there were stories about this house. Apparently there was a hand that came up out of the toilet if you had to go in the middle of the night. (laughs) 
Apparently, if you stood outside at midnight, you could see a flame go from one end of our house all the way to the other end as if it was walking through the walls. My house was the house where you could actually see Bloody Mary. Oh, yeah. And because of that, we had seances at my house all the time, in which I presided and told the creepiest stories ever. And we played the game light as a feather, stiff as a board, where the person would lay out and you would tell about how they died. And then it would end with, and when they brought them to the morgue, they were light as a feather. And everyone around the circle would go, light as a feather, light as a feather, light as a feather, stiff as a board, stiff as a board, stiff as a board. And then I would say, now you will put your two fingers under this person and lift them off the ground. And it worked because of the power of suggestion. And everyone would scream and run and eventually drop the person we had lifted up off of the ground. It was a great thing to do. But our house was the best place to stay on the weekends because of all of that. And my mother had seven kids. So she would just start cooking. She would count how many people were there and she'd just feed everybody. So often there'd be 16 people at the table. She'd just keep going till everybody was fed. And after dinner, my father would tell stories. And some of them were creepy and some of them were great. When we were kids, we thought he was thousands of years old because he told all of the stories in first person. I learned all of my Arthurian legend in first person. He told me he was apprenticed to Merlin. We believed him. He would sit at the table doing sleight of hand magic and we'd go, oh, you learned that from Merlin, okay. I learned the riddle of the Sphinx when I was in first grade. My father told me that Oedipus was an idiot and couldn't do the riddle and he had to solve it for him. And every now and again, just to make sure that we believed, he'd throw my mother into the stories. And so all the kids in the neighborhood thought my father was thousands of years old. But the best thing, of course, would be over the weekends. We'd have tons of kids over. My mother would count the people there, and she'd say, did you call your mother? Did you call your mother? Did you call your mother? Make sure you can stay over. So she'd have at least 12, 14 kids every weekend, sometimes more. And there came a weekend where, of course, the house was full, and we were all sitting around kind of chatting, and my mother had made dinner, and she had felt it wasn't quite enough because there was nothing left. Every scrap had been licked clean. So she thought she would make a little dessert, and she went into the kitchen, and she turned on our electric oven, and she had made some apple turnovers, and she put those in the oven, and she closed the door, and she came out and sat with us while we talked. And it was at that moment that the lights went out. And so now we are sitting in a haunted house with 14 children with no electricity. And my mother immediately starts lighting the candles that we have around and turning on the flashlights. But unfortunately, when you get a whole group of kids together in the dark in a haunted house with flashlights, story time. And so we immediately begin freaking each other out with the spookiest stories we can find. And then we're actually kind of frightened. And then someone turns a light over to say to my father, would you tell us a story? And he's gone. The only thing protecting us from the evil in the house is not in the room. And now we're worried. What happened to your dad? I don't know what happened to my dad. Did anyone see him leave? He's really big. How could he sneak out? And then, boom, boom, boom. We hear something coming down the hall. Twelve kids scatter in all directions. Ah! My mother says, everyone, sit down. Shut up. Okay. Come back over here. We all crawled back. Boom, boom, boom. My father comes out of the back room with a flashlight underneath his face. Wearing his gi looking like a big ghost with his black and red instructor's belt tied around his waist. And on his hip, a sword in a black scabbard. Boom, boom, boom. 
he was heavy and he was stomping. He says, get in a circle. We all got in a circle. Make room for me. We made room for him. He sat down, turned off the flashlight, took a candle and put it in the middle of the circle. It was a big candle. It made funny shadows on the ceiling and just illuminated our faces enough so we could see each other's eyes. My father said, you have been talking about the fact that this is a haunted house. Well, it is. And we all went, we know. <laughs> My mother was sitting to the side going, My dad said, there's something important I have to tell you. He said, when I was younger, I was stationed in Korea, and I met a man who was descended of the samurai. And he had no sons. And in the course of doing our duty together, I saved his life. And when he was dying, he sent for me. And he gave me his sword and made me his son and told me that from then on, all of the warriors who have held the sword will now be my ancestors, and they will watch over me always. Shing! He unsheathed the sword. We all jumped a little bit. It glimmered there in the light above his head. He said, I call upon my ancestors, the bravest, the strongest of all the samurai. Come to us now. We need you in this hour of darkness. She sheathed a sword, held it up, and waited. And we waited too. And then he said, they're with us. And now I will pass this sword around. And whosoever does touch this sword will forever be protected by the great samurai of the past. And so my father began passing the sword around the circle. And we were all grabbing at the sword, hoping that we didn't suck up all the ancestors before it got to the end. And then my father held up the sword again. And he said, and now my ancestors, if you are with us, if you are near, send us a sign. Bah! The buzzer on the oven went off in the kitchen. We all fell away in the darkness. Ah! My mother says, stop screaming. <gasps> Sit down. <sighs> Come back over here. <sighs> we all crawled back. She got up. She went in the room. She turned the buzzer off. We thought, oh my gosh. The ancestors set the buzzer on the stove off. What could it mean? What could it possibly mean? Three minutes later, my mother arrived in the other room with fresh, piping hot apple turnovers. We were eating hot apple turnovers in the blackout. Ovens don't work in the blackout. My mother handed out hot apple turnovers, and we ate them. And we knew that the ancestors of old had cooked the turnovers <laughs> as a sign that they were with us and we were protected. My mother chose not to tell us about residual heat at that point. <laughs> and so tonight, as you make your way home to your warm homes and your warm beds and your families, I send with you some of my ancestors.
May they keep you safe as you drive or walk or ride on your way. And I can do that because there are samurai over my head. Storyteller Donna Washington with Samurai Over My Head. Alyssa Mingorance has been listening to the story with me along with you. And uh, Alyssa, what do you love about that story? I mean, there are so many things I love about that story, (laughs) right? But I think if I have to pick one, it brings back all the times that my family loved to spook each other. (laughs) You know, uh, I remember in particular, my older brother had this like, a plastic fake insect, like he had a few of them, oh, and they yeah. were very realistic looking, but definitely oversized, right? Um, and he would sometimes tie them to like a string attached to his door. I don't know quite how he did it, but if you walked in his room, bugs would just be suddenly flying right into your face, <laughs> and it it got me every time. I hate to say it, but it did. <laughs> you know, I have a memory of. Uh... A friend of mine and I in high school uh, uh, going to a school dance mm. and inviting a couple of girls that we knew as our dates, and we thought it might be fun. It was a, it, it, it was a, again, it was it was a, a an autumn dance, and we thought it might be fun to eat uh, dinner together in an abandoned old house that looked kind of haunty, you know. Oh, I love this. And we <laughs> we, we went before uh, before the the dinner to set up, and we. We thought it would be fun if we tied a, a string to one of the doors in this house. And then as we were all sitting, eating together at the table, we ordered a pizza or something sure. like that. you know. And then the plan was in the middle of the dinner for somebody to pull on this string and for one of the doors in the house to swing closed or swing mm, open or something yeah. right in view of everybody. And, and we would scare our dates. Well, you know, we, we sat eating our pizza and at the appointed time, I reached down and pulled the string and the door swung open and uh, the girls were just eating their pizza and my friend had forgotten that we were going to do it. So uh, when that door swung open, he jumped right out of his chair and screamed. The only person that wound up being the victim of that joke was the guy who had planned it. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love the way the world works sometimes. The world works that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. We can't wait to bring more stories to you this hour. I'm Sam Payne. See you in a minute. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you during today's episode of The Appleseed, bringing you stories of all kinds from tellers of all kinds, tales old and new. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story called Samurai Over My Head. When you hear that title, you think it might be a folk tale, but it's a family tale from storyteller Donna Washington. There's lots more coming up from Lona Bartlett and Olga Loya and Joseph Bruchak. Stories about spiders and tigers and alligators and dogs and buzzards, but because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you can tell around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine, a memory about a trip, a special trip I took with my folks when I was a kid. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. (music) 
the Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. The year I turned five, we were traveling. My dad, the folk singer, had a little series of gigs across the northern border in Canada, and we all went along. My mom, my little brother Joe, my baby brother Dave, and me. And there's a lot about that trip that I don't remember, but there are moments that shine through in bright, sharp relief, even after so many years. In those days, the family car was a big yellow cargo van that my dad used to carry sound equipment. For family trips, we'd rig up seats in the cargo area or spread out cushions and blankets and roll around back there reading books or snacking on potato chips and orange slices. I remember driving slowly on a highway, slowly because traffic had been backed up by a couple of bears on the road. Everybody got through it safely, even the bears, and I got to see bears. A couple of miles later, on the same road, we saw a gang of elk. No kidding, a gang. Did you know that was the collective noun for elk? Well, we saw one. A gang of elk, lolling in a clearing among the trees just off the highway. On another day, we wound up a mountain road and, coming around a corner, overtook a bighorn sheep trotting along the road's gravel shoulder. My dad slowed the van down, and we drove alongside it for a few hundred feet just watching. What an amazing critter that was. The other memories I have of Canada are birthday memories. I turned five on that trip. The day of my birthday, June 10th, dawned gray. We were far from home, but my dad found a park in the town where we were, and the park had a baseball diamond, and we took a ball down there and played catch, and ran the bases, and took a break, and swung on the swings, and as we did that, my mom sewed a little patch depicting the Canadian flag onto my little down vest, a memento of the trip. Later, in the hotel where we were staying, my mom produced a birthday cake. It had five candles. It was decorated with little plastic animals that she had bought on the seasonal aisle of the little grocery store down the street from the hotel. Somehow, I felt like Canada and I were in a relationship after that. Do you have a place like that? A place that lives in a rich place in your memory, even though you only went there once or twice, or even just in your imagination? Well... Months after we got home from Canada, for Christmas that year, in fact, my mom had taken bits of cloth and had sewed them onto a big blanket to make a map of the places that were important to us. The map had roads on it made of gray fabric where I could drive my matchbox cars. We could roll the map out on the floor and I could drive my cars around on it to these places my mom had represented there. There was a house in the middle of the map made of a white square of cloth with a brown triangle for the roof. The house sat in the middle of a big green field. That was my house. And there were three gray roads leading from my house. One went directly to the left, to a little fabric square with a rectangle on top that represented my grandmother's house, my dad's folks. They lived in Southern California. Then there was another gray road that went sort of northwest from our house, and at the end of that road, another fabric house that represented my mom's folks, my grandparents that lived in northern California. And then going straight north from our house all the way to the very top edge of the blanket, a gray fabric road that terminated in a patch just like the one on my down vest, a little patch that depicted the Canadian flag. 
And there it was, all the places I'd gone, depicted in fabric on a blanket where I could visit them again, driving my matchbox cars. The place where I lived, the place where my grandma Payne lived, the place where my grandma Pappas lived, and Canada. I've been more places since then. Any map to chart it all would be much more complicated than the map my mother made so long ago. It would have to include places that you can only get to by flying in an airplane and not by matchbox car. It would have to include oceans for boats and exotic foods and language guides, city lights and snowy peaks and deserts. But I keep that blanket in my closet still, that old blanket that serves as a record of what the world looked like to me when I was five. A record of all the places, all the places I, at five, felt like I was the master of. My house, my grandma's house, other grandma's house, and Canada. What world back then could possibly be vast enough to include anything else? The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share as stories with the people that you love. Lots more coming up. We're going to get to a fun Anansi story. Anansi, the trickster spider of so many tales. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films we see on screen, through the tellings of tales around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire, through the great songs that find their way into our hearts, even through terrific food that we enjoy together. They're all wellsprings of stories that we can tell and retell and continue to learn from. And of course, it almost goes without saying that some of the great stories that find their way deep into the heart of our lives come to us through great books, books that we learn about and love when we're small, as well as books that we learn about and love when we're grown. And it's always a pleasure to have Paul Ricks with us to talk about something new. Paul, it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. You know, we're some of the books that wind up kind of meaning the most to us are books for which we can sort of find our own narrative, right? That, that allow us to be the story composers. And I'm, I'm saying that partly because the book that you brought today has no words. Indeed. It is uh, Christian Robinson's Another. Yeah. And that word in the title is the only one that you'll find throughout. It is called a, a wordless picture book. And this one just came out this past year. Yeah. If I tried to describe the narrative, it would be... That there's a girl asleep in her bed. She's got a cat who is also on said bed. And by the second or third page, another cat is showing up and there's a light kind of shining, shining through. But that makes it sound like it's not a book about a girl who goes through a portal and <laughs> finds another version of herself. And there is another cat and, 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 and it's got all of these levels. She sees all of these different kids who have their pseudo mirrors, but there's just something huh. slightly different. 
Wow. A, a multidimensional yeah. feline it's just kid that in 32 experience. pages, That's you know? Um, <laughs> you know, as you, as you talk about uh, uh, people being familiar or not with books that are just pictures, I'm thinking about David Macaulay's Black and White, which sure. was a, uh, a Caldecott Award winner, right? And, yeah. And where, where you get four stories unfolding at the same time. And trying to make sense of all of them. And trying to make sense of all of them. You yeah. Know? And, and uh, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about some, of the, some of the great books that have given us very, very little to read at a lot to look at. Yeah, David Wiesner sure, with his yeah. Tuesdays, his, his flying and frogs, and things. yeah. <laughs> and one of my favorite things to do, and, and um, I, I try to record sometimes when I share this book because if you've shared it once, at least my experience has been, then you kind of expect that you know where it's going to go next. Yeah, but that is not the case. Huh. With a wordless picture book, people talk their way through and they pay attention to different things. I've seen students and young readers pay attention only to the cat and they narrate just what's happening to the cat oh, the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. They almost don't even care about the person. <laughs> and at other times, they really, really see themselves in the main character and they're talking through yeah. um, that person, what she's thinking, what she's feeling. It's kind of the like inception, like Christopher Nolan's inception of picture books. Like if you tried to describe to somebody what inception's about, a dream within a dream within a dream, sure. Who cares? Yeah. But if you watch the thing, you're like, okay. I've never seen that before. Right. Thank you, Christopher <laughs> Nolan. You know, you just did that. Yeah. Um, similarly, if I tried to describe the illustrations, they're very, in some ways, simple. Yeah. But there are hidden gems that you will go back and look at with the colors. Yeah, such that's the, what I'm thinking. As I look at the book, I'm thinking, what an imaginative color palette, you know, that you're yeah. looking at. And, and really just this kind of kinetic energy and all these pictures of... Well, as, as as you, I mean, you know, it's a it's a multi-dimensional f- feline kid adventure. <laughs> yeah, that's easy enough to describe. <laughs> Again, I mean, it's it's hard to describe, but I think there are, are enough moments, enough contact points where you say, "Oh, okay, this. I think I get it. Yeah, I think it makes sense to me. This reminds me of," and then you fill in the blank, and then you'll flip the page and be like. Never mind. Now it means this. And yeah. You put the page. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. And if you like that, if you're okay with having somebody disrupt your expectations and being just a little subversive, yeah, playful in that space, then uh, then Christian Robinson's uh, another is is a text for you, and it and it's one that I think that adults should just try by themselves. Yeah. Too. I'll tell you, I, I I'm thinking about an experience that I had. When I was a kid, it's one of the memorable little book experiences I had with my mother, which was uh, she uh, liked to read to me. Uh, it was just a little Mari Sendak setting of a little nursery rhyme, Hector yeah. Protector. Uh-huh. And we would read Hector Protector together, and there weren't very many words, but right. there was a lot to talk about in each picture. Yeah. And, I, and I think about, you know, kids will often go to their parents and say, read me a story, and that will become, uh, you know, pretty much a one-way narration. Mm-hmm. You know, the parent will read the story and the kid will enjoy it. And uh, th- th- that's, that's invaluable. I mean, that's... Right, nothing that's wrong a, with that. That's, but a, that's, a, that's an one amazing experience, sure, right? Sure. But if you give a child and a parent a book with no words, then the, the experience has to become a conversation as they yeah. kind of unpack this together, right? And, and the idea that once uh, an author and an illustrator, they're putting it out there for the masses. Yeah. And and I think, it, I mean, it's this choice. Like, I'm letting go of some of... Um some of the authority by yeah. ge- by allowing you to be a co-creator. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What do you see in this text? That's right. What do you feel is this story? And for me, that's very exciting, especially the idea that 
a 40-year-old dad or mom with a 5 or 6 or 10-year-old kid that there could be significant levels of autonomy that yeah. are you know that really are level that, yeah. that like mom and dad and kids are all on the same level co-creating to me there's there's nothing more magical than that and this text in particular I think just unlocks a lot of those affordances and those possibilities yeah. and if I can make one more plug um this is something that my seven-year-old son did as soon as we finished it. He said, you know, Dad, um, there's no reason that we have to read this book the normal way. And what he meant by that was top to bottom, left to right. <laughs> he, started the, he started at the last page, created a different story, and uh, that was uh, something well worth having uh, together as well. I can only imagine. Paul Ricks, thank you so much. The book is Another. The author-illustrator is, again, Christian Robinson. Christian Robinson. Thank you so much for being with us. You bet. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. It's always a pleasure to have Paul Ricks come and talk with us about a favorite book. Sometimes stories that will change your life are as near as your bookshelf or as near as the library. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Lona Bartlett, a story called Anansi and the Tiger. And you won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Paul Ricks about a favorite book. And at the top of the hour, a story called Samurai Over My Head, told for you by Donna Washington. And an entry in the Radio Family Journal about a trip to Canada. Up next, we've got an Anansi story. Anansi, the trickster spider. And in this story, if Anansi can ride tiger like a horse, then he gets to marry the princess. But if he fails, then tiger gets to marry the princess. Who do you think will win? The brave and strong tiger or the small and clever Anansi? We're going to find out now with Lona Bartlett and Anansi and Tiger here on The Appleseed. I grew up being told that I was English, Irish, German, Dutch, Scottish, and Native American, which means Everybody in my family got along. We learned to appreciate stories and songs from other cultures. This particular story is an Anunzi story and comes from Africa. It's called Anunzi and the Tiger. Way back when, animals were able to speak and interact with people. As it was, there was this lovely princess. She had two suitors. They both wanted very much to marry her. There was the tiger, and there was a nunzi, the spider. Oh, the tiger said, Princess, I wish to marry you and make you my wife. Because you see, I am strong and mighty and... Oh, so handsome. Oh, Anunzi, of course, said as well. Oh, but princess, you might not want to marry him. Actually, you probably want to marry me because although he's strong and mighty and oh, so handsome, I am strong of mind. You see, I can think quickly. Oh, I simply do not know who I should marry. It is true, Tiger, that you are strong 
and mighty and oh so handsome. But Anunzi, it is true that you are strong of mind. I just don't know what I'm going to do. She was from Southern Africa. Well, princess, because I am strong and mighty oh so handsome, you do know that I could take one paw and I could squish this simple spider. Perhaps you could, but Tiger, I propose a challenge. A challenge? Yes. Uh, Tiger, you know, I think the princess is going to want to marry me because one day I'm going to ride you as if you were a horse. Oh, that's never going to happen because I'm strong and mighty and oh, so handsome. Oh, perhaps. We'll see. Several weeks later, Anunzi decided that he was going to ride Tiger as if he were a horse. So he got thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Oh, what can I, how am I going to do this? I got to ride him as a horse. Would I go? No. And uh, we go, oh, I know. <gasps> I have an idea. Anunzi went into the jungle and he stood beside the great tree. He knew that every day, Tiger would take a walk through the jungle, and every day, he passed by the great tree. Anunzi wanted to be in his path, because he had a plan. So Anunzi walked out and stood beside the great tree, watching for the tiger to come around the bend. As he came around the bend, Anunzi began doing this. Oh! Oh, it hurts! Oh, I'm in such pain! Nobody knows how much this hurts me! The tiger walked majestically down the path and he saw Anunzi and he said, Anunzi, what seems to be the problem? Oh, it's just this ankle. Oh, my goodness. You just, I came out to get some exercise like you do, Tiger. Because I want to be strong and mighty, you know, so handsome. And while I was walking the path, I twisted my ankle and, oh, it hurts so dreadfully. I can't walk. I'm going to need some help. Well, I don't see how I could possibly help you. Oh, it would be easy. Would you just simply get a stick for me and I could use it as a cane and then you and I could walk back to the village and, and you know, we could probably get back in time and I would go and, and talk to the princess and tell her that perhaps she could she should consider you to to be her husband, because after all, you are strong and mighty, you know, so handsome. The tiger did want to go back to the village, and he thought it was a wonderful idea that Anunzi would go and talk to the princess and let her know exactly how strong and mighty he was. So the tiger went and found for Anunzi a stick that he could use as a walking cane. Oh, that stick is absolutely perfect. You're wonderful. Thank you for getting that for me. So the tiger and Anunzi 
walked together down the path, and they had oh-so-pleasant conversation. When suddenly... don't know what I could do for you now. Well, Tiger, you know, you're just so strong. Couldn't you just pick me up in your front paws and carry me back to the village? We would get back so much quicker. And and if we do that, then I could really tell the princess that not only should she consider you to be her husband, but you could probably have tea with her this evening. The tiger liked the idea of having tea with the princess, but he knew that he could not walk on his two hind legs alone. So he suggested that Anunzi crawl upon his back. Anunzi, and if you would, then that way I could simply carry you back. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. I Yes, I'd love to climb up and sit on your back. Well, Anunzi and the tiger walked together and they had oh-so-pleasant conversation when suddenly... Oh, my goodness, my... Oh, my, my... You know, Tiger, I I want to know, I am just sliding back and forth back here on your back. This is... I'm going to fall... Ooh, got to fall off the back. I'm going to... Oh, my... Oh, no. Okay. Now, um, could you just maybe walk a little more gently? Or perhaps you could get some of those beautiful vines that are up in the tree and... If you would just put them around your strong and mighty neck, I could just hold on the vines and that would keep me from, whoa, I've got to fall, from falling off the back. And if you did that, I'm sure that we could get back to the village so much quicker. And not only would you be able to have tea with the princess, but you could probably have dinner with her as well. The tiger really liked the idea of having dinner with the princess. So he decided to get the vines from the trees. Anunzi, here you go. They're wrapped around my neck and just hold on to them and you'll be able to stay on my back so much more easily. I know you could do that. Oh, Tiger, of course I can because you're so strong and mighty and of course you are. Oh, so handsome. Well, the tiger and Anunzi walked along together, and they had, oh, so pleasant conversation. But suddenly, oh, my goodness. Oh, you know what, tiger? You know what's happening now is, oh, my goodness, these vines, these vines are going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Oh, my goodness. You are just sleek as can be, aren't you? This is, oh, my uh, tiger, if you could, if you would, oh, uh, I have an idea. Would you put those in your, your mouth and then, ooh, I could hang on to them and they won't go back and forth and back and forth. You're going to get a vine burn on your neck with these things going back and forth so much. Just put them in your mouth and then they'll hold still and I'll be able to hold tightly to them and we could get to the village so much quicker. And then not only could you have tea and dinner with the princess, but certainly I would be able to tell her that you are truly the strongest and the mightiest and the most handsome of them all. And certainly 
you should be her husband. Well, the tiger did think that that was a good idea, so he put the vines in his mouth and held them tightly between his teeth. Anunzi grabbed onto the vines, and they had a pleasant stroll, but Anunzi this time did all the talking. Just as they came to the edge of the forest, and the village was in sight, Anunzi grabbed the vines, pulled them back, picked up that little stick that he had been given to use as a walking cane, and began to strike the back of Tiger. Tiger began to run and run and run, and he ran faster and faster and faster and faster, Anunzi sitting on his back, riding him as if he were a horse. Anunzi kept striking the back of Tiger, and they ran throughout the entire village until they came to the front of the castle, and Anunzi slid off so easily and tied Tiger to a tree that stood in the front of the castle. The princess was on the steps, and as Anunzi climbed up those steps to greet her, he said, oh, did you see it? Did you see it, princess? I rode Tiger as if he were a horse. Oh, my, but I did see it. It was absolutely spectacular. I just never, ever thought that it was going to happen, but indeed, you did make it happen, Anunzi. Anunzi and the princess walked into the castle together, and just as they were about to sit down, Tiger broke free from that tree, leaving the vines behind, and he ran up so quickly into the castle. This frightened Anunzi because it was true that Tiger could take one paw and strike Anunzi and squish him. Anunzi climbed up into the rafters and it's there he stayed. Tiger was so ashamed that he allowed Anunzi to trick him so easily that Tiger turned and went out into the jungle, and it's there he stayed. To this day, that is the reason that spiders stay in the rafters of our homes and tigers live in the jungle. Anansi and Tiger, a story told for you by Lana Bartlett. And up next, a story from Olga Loya, who used to sit together with her grandmother or her father and listen to their stories for hours. That's how a lot of us fell in love with storytelling, right? Well, now more than 50 years later, Olga is still telling stories and tales that will inspire future generations. Here's one of them now. It's called The Alligator and the Dog. Here's Olga Loya on the Appleseed. The Alligator and the Dog, a folktale from Cuba. Once in the land of Cuba, there was an alligator who thought very highly of himself. He would look at himself in the river and say, Ay, que guapo soy, oh, I am so handsome. I have such beautiful sharp teeth. I have the most beautiful scales. Soy el mejor que toca el tambor en este país, y no solo eso, tengo la mejor voz. I can play the best drum in the country, and not only that, I have the best voice. He would walk back and forth along the river, saying these things to himself, and smiling at himself in the river. One day, dog, 
who was named Son, came along and heard Kaiman Alligator playing his drum and singing. He saw Alligator's drum and said, Ay, Kaiman, viejo amigo, tú eres un Kaiman tan bueno y tan generoso también. Oh, Alligator, old friend, you are such a nice Alligator and so generous, too. Would you let me play your drum for a little while, por favor, please? Hmm, Alligator muttered to himself. He'll never be able to play the drum or sing as well as I do. Es imposible. It is impossible. So he said to Dog, Oh, all right. I will lend you the drum for just a minute. No mas de un momento. No more than a minute. Son took the drum and started to beat on it. Soon he found a little tune and began to sing. Fin de cabón, fin de cabón, tambora via nue, gana luanga. Kaiman was a bit surprised by how well Son sang. He sounded pretty good, he thought. I better get that drum back. Son, the women may sit on board. Give me back that drum. Oh, alligator, said Dog. Said buen amigo, be a good friend. Just let me play it for a little while more. I promise I will give it back to you. Really, I will. Por favor? Oh, all right, said alligator but you can play it just for a little bit more. Son started to play and sing again, and again it sounded good. Not only could he sing, he was dancing along with the music too. Fin de cabón, fin de cabón, tambora gana luanga. This made Alligator very nervous. Son looked as though he was having too much fun. Son, I want my drum back this minute. You can't play it anymore. Oh, Kaiman, I know you are so talented and wapo, handsome. You're also my best friend, por favor. Just let me play the drum a little bit more. I will give it back to you and never, never ask for it again. Está bien. I will let you play it for the very last time. Alligator was beginning to regret that he'd ever lent Son his drum. Dog started to play and he sang, Fin de cabón, fin de cabón. And he kept walking. Then he sang, Tambora Viane. And then he kept walking. And then he started running as he sang, Gongana Luanga. He ran away. An alligator could not catch him. Soon, Son was traveling all over, playing his drum and singing. He became well known all throughout the land. Alligator tried to catch him, but every time he would hear about Dog, he would have disappeared. Everywhere Son went, he was asked to perform his special song. Fin de cabón, fin de cabón, tambora viane, gungana luanga. One day, the king of the land went to Son and said, I have heard of your fine plane. My daughter, la princesa, has died. I want you to play at the funeral. On that sad day, Son sang and played his drum as people paraded throughout the kingdom. Everyone marched to their favorite song. Fin de cabón, fin de cabón, tambora via nue, gungana luanga. Well, you know, Alligator bought another drum, but he never became as famous as Son, and he never ever caught him either. Dog, on the other hand, continued going throughout the land, singing his song.
Ogaloya with a story called The Alligator and the Dog. And up next, we've got a story called How Buzzard Got His Feathers. It comes from Joseph Bruchak, a prolific teller of tales and writer of words. There are libraries full of Joseph Bruchak birds. And this story is a pourquoi story. We call them pourquoi stories because that word means why. Why did something get to be the way that it came to be? And uh, there are all kinds of stories that in a storytelling way tell the story of how something came to be the way it is. Well, again, here's How Buzzard Got His Feathers from Joseph Bruchak here on The Appleseed. The stories that were told in the old days and the stories that are still told today were more often than not teaching stories. Their purpose was not just to entertain, but also to instruct. If someone did something they shouldn't do, instead of punishing them, you'd tell them a story. Now this story tells how Buzzard got his feathers, and whenever I tell this story, I think of a painting that was done by the late and very, very great Iroquois artist, Ernie Smith, which showed Buzzard with a coat of feathers he finally got. How Buzzard Got His Feathers. A long time ago, the birds had no clothing. They spoke like people, but they were very shy and hid from sight. One day they decided to hold a council. We must go to Creator and ask that we be clothed, said the eagle. And it was decided. But who would be the one to carry the message to Creator? Many birds volunteered. Finally, Buzzard was chosen. With his long wings, he would be able to fly that great distance. He could soar higher than any of the other birds, and so come more easily to the sun place where Creator's home was. All the birds burned tobacco to send their prayers up to Creator. Then Buzzard set out on his way. It was a long journey. Buzzard flew and flew. He ate the food he carried with him and still was far from the place of Creator. He became very hungry, and he flew and he flew. He became so hungry that when he saw some dead fish washed up on the shore below him, he stopped. They were rotten and smelled very bad, but Buzzard was so hungry he did not notice. He ate all those fish. Then he continued on his way, and he flew and he flew. Now he was close to the place where Creator lived. He began to go higher and higher. It grew very hot from the light of the sun, but still he flew up and up. It grew very hot. It grew hotter and hotter and hotter, and the skin on top of his head was burned red from the sun's heat, but still he flew on. At last he came to the place of Creator. I have been waiting for you, Creator said. I heard the prayers sent up to me. I will give you clothing made of fine feathers to take back to all the birds. Then he showed Buzzard the clothing he'd prepared. Fine indeed. There were as many colors as there are in the rainbow which arches across the sky after a rain and the feathers of those suits of clothing shone so bright in the sun-filled place of Creator that Buzzard had to turn his eyes away from them. Now, Creator said, I have watched how you came to me. 
I have seen it was a hard journey. You may have the first choice of all these suits of feathers. Remember, though, you may try on each suit only one time. Buzzard was very pleased. I must choose the finest feathers, he said to himself. Then everyone will see them and remember I was the one who brought back the clothing for the birds. He tried on a suit of bright blue and white feathers with a jaunty cap on top of it. No, he said, taking it off. Not bright enough. And that was the suit which went to Blue Jay. He tried on another suit, bright red and black with a tall crest on it of feathers. No, he said. I do not look good in red. And so that was the suit that went to Cardinal. He tried on another suit. It was gray and black with a scarlet vest. Again, Buzzard was not satisfied. And that was the suit that went to Robin. He put on a suit yellow as the sun with handsome dark markings. Too much black on this one, he said. And that was the suit that went to Goldfinch. Creator was very patient. Buzzard tried on one suit and another suit and another suit, and another suit, and another suit, and none of them were right. Sometimes the feathers were too long. Sometimes they were not long enough. Some of them were too dark. Others were too light. None of them seemed good enough for the messenger of all the birds. Finally, Buzzard put on a suit of clothes which was too small for him. The others had been the right size when he put them on, growing larger or smaller to fit. But this last suit of feathers was very tight. Buzzard strained and pulled, and finally he got it on. It left his legs and his neck bare. The red skin on his bald head was uncovered. He looked at the suit of feathers. Not fine. Not fine at all. They were just about no color, dirty brown. They were not shiny and neat like the others. Buzzard was not pleased. This is the worst of all, he said. Creator smiled. Buzzard, he said, it is the last one left. Now it will have to be yours. To this day you see Buzzard wearing that suit which he earned for himself. He still eats things long dead because of what he ate on his journey to the place of Creator. And though some may make fun of the way he looks, and Buzzard knows his pride was his problem. Still he remembers he was the only one who could make that long journey. And even in his suit of dirty feathers which fits him so badly, even with his head burned scarlet from the heat of sun, he remembers that he was chosen to be the messenger for all the birds. And when he circles high in the sky, he is close to Creator. Then, even in that ill-fitting suit of feathers, his heart feels strong. And so, the story goes. Ho! Oh. Joseph Bruchak with How Buzzard Got His Feathers. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on The Apple Seed.
Hi, Sam here. Just one more thing before we go. We want to invite you to join BYU Radio, the folks who bring you the Appleseed, for a month of service. From September 20th to October 16th, we'll be asking our listeners to collectively complete 10,000 acts of service. Now, participating is easy. We're not going to tell you what to do to serve, but you can do anything you want, anything from taking cookies to a neighbor to picking up trash at a local park, just about anything. And we'd love it if you tell us what you do. You can visit byuradio.org service to shoot us a message about the things that you're doing as service projects. And uh, we might choose your story to feature on air. Tune in to BYU Radio to hear what others are doing. Now, the slogan for this campaign is bring it. And that means a couple of things. First of all, when somebody challenges us to do 10,000 acts of service, our response is bring it. But we also mean to bring whatever you have and serve. Bring your enthusiasm, your interests, your talents, your hunger for change, your cans of food, whatever you got, bring it. So come and be a part of something big and wonderful as we serve together between September 20th and October 16th. You can visit byuradio.org service to learn more. Thanks.